This is from Daniel chapter 5, starting at verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a bank great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters astrologers and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners. This man Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the, the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligent, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the most high God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. 
and those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you do not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is what the words mean. Mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Good morning, everyone. Now let's uh, just bow in prayer as we come to consider God's word. Father, we thank you for uh, revealing yourself to us so clearly through the words of Scripture. We thank you that uh, the uh, accounts that we read uh, throughout Scripture are there for our benefit, that uh, we might be challenged and encouraged by the examples of how you've worked in the lives of people in the past. Father, we pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit to take this word, to uh, grant us spiritual insight and understanding that we might live lives that are worthy of Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we really should have been able to see the writing on the wall, shouldn't we? Uh, That's what uh, people are saying about the present uh, uh, international economic crisis. Uh, They reckoned that the signs uh, were all there, Uh, in particular the flourishing of the subprime mortgage industry uh, with its uh, lending out large sums of money to people who could ill afford to pay that money back, uh, combined with the plummeting uh, value of real estate. These were the signs and we should have been able to see the signs because the writing was on the wall. Uh, Realistically, it could have only led to one outcome and that outcome being the uh, the meltdown of the financial markets. Uh, Some economists did see the writing on the wall. Uh, They have been saying for a couple of years that there are those indicators uh, mean that we were heading for trouble, but uh, the people in power were not listening to them. The writing was on the wall. 
Uh, that's a phrase that we commonly use in the English language, isn't it? Uh, I did a Google search yesterday uh, and uh, found that there's been countless songs that have been written, which have been called the writings on the wall. Uh, there have been TV shows that have been entitled the writings on the wall. Uh, for fans of Yes Minister, there's an episode of that called the writings on the wall. There have been uh, movies made called the writings on the wall. There have been pop albums that have been uh, uh, produced. Destiny's Child put out an album called The Writings on the Wall just recently. And uh, so it's something which has become a part of our language in the same way, by the way, that Google is now part of our language. What does it mean? Well, it means that, uh, that something has happened, that there are indicators which mean that something bad is going to happen and there's not much we can do to stop it. When you think about it, there's lots of uh, English phrases that uh, come from the Bible, uh, popular English phrases such as uh, pride comes before a fall. We learnt that one last week in Daniel chapter 4. The blind leading the blind, going the extra mile, and I, my brother's keeper. Uh, these are all uh, phrases that are common in our language which come from the Bible. And of course, the other one, of course, is the writings on the wall. Uh, this phrase, which we use so often, actually comes from the chapter of the Bible that we're dealing with today, which is Daniel chapter 5. So can I get you to open up your Bibles at Daniel chapter 5 on page 629? Uh, because there we see that uh, from chapter 4 to chapter 5, that things have changed in Babylon. Uh, at the end of chapter 4, we saw that Nebuchadnezzar uh, was back on his throne, having been humbled by God and repenting. But in verse 1 of chapter 5, there is another man now sitting on Babylon's throne. His name is King Belshazzar. Uh, not to be confused with uh, Daniel's Babylonian name, which was Belteshazzar. Uh, remember that Babylonian names are often derived from their god, and one of their gods was the god Bel. So that's the reason why the names are so similar. As we read through chapter 5, we see that uh, Belshazzar is described as being, uh, rather that Nebuchadnezzar is described as being Belshazzar's father. Now, that may simply mean that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was his respected predecessor. Uh, there's some archaeological evidence to say that uh, Belshazzar's uh, biological father was a fellow by the name of Nabonidus, uh, who was a usurper of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, that, never, never mind that. The, uh, the critical issue here is that in Daniel 5, the author is not attempting to give us a chronology of who was sitting on the throne and when and what their relationships were to one another. What the author of Daniel 5 is doing for us is he is showing us a sharp contrast between two particular occupants of the throne. Nebuchadnezzar contrasted with Belshazzar. Now, in verses 1 to 4, we get a snapshot of the rule of Belshazzar. Uh, and what we see is that whereas Nebuchadnezzar was famous for building a kingdom, Belshazzar the only event in his life that was worthy of recording in scripture 
was that he threw a party. All right, have a look at verses 1 to 4. I'm going to read it for you. Uh, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. And in verse 4, as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Right? Uh, see what's happening here? Uh, Belshazzar is living the high life. Uh, this is what we would call an A-list party. Uh, he has invited all of the, uh, the powerful people, uh, all of the uh, rich and famous people of Babylon to the palace and they are getting stuck into the booze. That's what's happening. Halfway through the party, the, the king decides that he wants to spice up the party a little bit and uh, he thinks that it would be a great prank uh, to go and get the gold and the silver goblets or cups that... Uh, had been taken from God's temple in Jerusalem when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. Uh, now, these cups were cups which were used uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in, in the, the sacrificial process. They were used in the worship of God uh, in his temple. Uh, you might remember from chapter 1 that uh, when Nebuchadnezzar had received these cups that uh, he, he took those cups and he, he at least showed some respect for them by going and placing them in the temple of his God. Now, that was misguided respect. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar acted from ignorance, uh, but nevertheless it showed some degree of respect for these items. But not this bloke, not Belshazzar. Uh, he was having a great time with all his mates at God's expense uh, because in verse 5 he used those cups to toast his gods, to worship and honour his false gods of gold and silver and wood and stone and so on. In other words, what he is doing is he, in his drunken party, is thumbing his nose in arrogance at the true God, the God of Israel. Now, what happened next is now part of the English language. Have a look at verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a hand appeared, of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. Now, that would have been a scary thing. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that a disembodied hand suddenly appears and start scratching a message on the wall. Uh, we're told that in verse 6, the king's face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. You like that? It's a nice description, isn't it? But it doesn't go far enough. Look, I don't know anything about the Aramaic language. Uh, let's be upfront about that. Uh, I can only rely on what the scholars what I read from the scholars, and what they say is this. When it says that his legs gave way, 
that is in fact a very polite translation. Do you want to know what it means? Uh, literally, it means that he lost control of his bodily functions. Guess what that's saying? Yeah, a, he wet himself. A puddle appeared under his chair. Uh, that, that's how frightened this fellow was. And it repeats several times during the passage that he had turned pale. He was, he, was white, he was as white as anything, this fellow. He was really, really scared and guilty. And he's got no idea uh, what this writing on the wall means. And so uh, in verses 7 to 9, he does what they normally do when there's some kind of uh, obscure message. Uh, they go and, he goes and wheels out uh, the magicians, the astrologers, the enchanters, you know, the, the so-called wise men of Babylon. He wheels them out uh, to see what they make of it and they don't have a clue either. They, they, they've got, they haven't got the foggiest idea what it means. And so in verses 10 through to 12, the queen, which is probably the queen mother in contrast to his wives and concubines, concubines that are mentioned earlier in the passage, uh, the queen who's wiser than the wise men, she, she tells, uh, tells Belshazzar about Daniel, whom Nebuchadnezzar had appointed as his chief advisor. Now, it seems, uh, therefore, that under this new regime that uh, uh, Daniel was out, you know, there were some new fellows in, and Daniel had been largely forgotten. But Belshazzar's desperate. So he summons Daniel, and in verse 16 he promises him, he says, look, if you can tell me what the message means, I'll make it worth your while. Right? He says, I'll, I'll, I'll dress you up in a purple robe, I'll... Um, I'll go and hang a gold chain around your neck and I'll, uh, I'll give you a top job in my cabinet. So uh, tell me what the message means and I'll make it worth your while. Now, how impressed do you think Daniel would be by that kind of an offer? You think he's interested in those sorts of things? No, nah, not at all. Uh, in, in verse 17, he doesn't want the king's gifts uh, in fact, you get the impression that Daniel is, is sort of fed up with this bloke, if you read between the lines. Uh, you can imagine that Daniel, observing how the kingdom has been run under this character, uh, isn't particularly impressed, and this is probably not the first time that uh, he has hosted a drunken party in the, uh, in the palace. Uh, Daniel has got zero respect for this fellow. Unlike with Nebuchadnezzar, you might remember when... Uh, uh, Daniel had to read the judgment or, or the prophecy against Nebuchadnezzar. He said to Nebuchadnezzar, I wish that this prophecy was against your enemies and not against you. But not with this bloke. He's got zero respect for him. And he says, look, mate, you can keep your gifts. Uh, this prophet is not for sale. Give your gifts to someone else. Keep them yourself. Uh, I'm not interested in that. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to tell you what the message means anyway, free of charge. And so... Before he tells him the interpretation, though, Daniel has a few words of his own. And he reminds the king of how God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. We see that in verse 18. Let me read verse 18 to verse 21 for you. He says, O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendour. Because of the high position he gave him, 
All the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. When his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. Now, we read about that uh, and learnt about that last week in Daniel chapter 4. And I want to ask you this question. Um, why do you think that Daniel had to tell Belshazzar about what God had done in the life of Nebuchadnezzar? Why do you think he had to tell him that? Do you think that Belshazzar didn't know? Do you think that he was ignorant of what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar, do you think that the whole Nebuchadnezzar thing was now a forgotten part of Babylonian history? Well, the answer to that is no, no, no. Um, Daniel continues in verse 22. In verse 22 he says, But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. And that's the critical point. Though you knew all this. Uh, Belshazzar was, was not ignorant. Belshazzar knew of what had happened in relation to God and Nebuchadnezzar. Now, friends, when God acts in someone's life, uh, it is not only for the sake of that person, uh, generally speaking. Uh, when God acts in someone's life, he, he does so for the benefit of others, for the benefit of those who come after that person. Uh, he does so for people like you and me. Uh, th that's why in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar wrote a letter to the people of the whole world. Uh, do you remember what his last words were? In chapter 4, in his letter to the leaders and the rulers and the people of the whole world, he said to them, those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. That was the message that Nebuchadnezzar wanted everyone in the world to hear. And I've got to tell you this, that Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, it sounds like a bold thing for us, for him to write a letter and say, this letter is addressed to the people of the whole world. I mean, that sounds very bold, doesn't it? He was the ruler of the greatest kingdom. But Nebuchadnezzar would have had no idea uh, just how widely his letter has now been published because for the last 2,600 years, uh, millions upon millions upon millions and millions and millions of people have been reading his letter, uh, particularly since, the, uh, uh, since our Lord Jesus Christ and the production of the scriptures and the scriptures going into all of the world. There are men and women, boys and girls, uh, of, of, of just about every language every place, every nation, every race on the face of the globe who have access to Nebuchadnezzar's letter. He would never have envisaged that. But what we see here is that when God uh, worked in his life, indeed when God works in the life of any person, as it is recorded for us in scripture, 
that the recording of that is for our sakes. It's for your sake, it's for my sake. The whole testimony of Nebuchadnezzar is there so that you and I would evaluate our lives, so that we would be asking the question, are we proud of ourselves, whereas we should actually be honouring God and bowing the knee to the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Now, if that is true for us, living 2,600 years after the event, how much truer is it of Belshazzar, who lived in the same lifetime as Daniel? Uh, for Belshazzar, for whom the events of Nebuchadnezzar's life were within living memory. But yet, he treated God with contempt. So, Daniel, having observed the way this man ran his kingdom, actually didn't need to interpret the message in order to know all of this. And in verses 22 through to 24, he basically says to Belshazzar, he says, look, you held in your hands those cups, those goblets. In your hands, you used God's uh, cups to toast your pagan gods. And he says, well, by doing that, by that activity and the motivations of your heart, you have failed to recognise that it is God who actually holds your life and your kingship in his hands. And so guess what? God, by the use of a hand, has now written a message for you on the wall. And let me tell you what the message says. You see the message? It's uh, uh, there in verse, uh, verse 25. The message is, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Right? It's Aramaic. And these words are words that have double meaning. Uh, if you translate these, if you read them as nouns, then what they are is they are units of currency or units of weight. Uh, and in, in the Hebrew equivalent, it would be like a minor, a minor, a shekel, and a half shekel. It's in decreasing value. If you read them as verbs, they mean this. They mean numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. So Daniel puts it bluntly in verse 26. He said, this is what the words mean, many. God has numbered your, the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've, you've been weighed on the scales and you've been found wanting. Perez, uh, which is the, um, the singular of parson and is also a play on the word Persia. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. That's it. That's the prophecy. Now, can you think of anything that might be missing from this prophecy that you might normally expect to find in a prophecy from God? Can you think of anything that might be missing from it? Right, what about if you compare it to the prophecies that were given to Nebuchadnezzar, is there any kind of difference between those prophecies and this prophecy? What are you thinking? Any ideas? Uh, let me tell you what my thoughts are. Uh, in this, there is no invitation for this man to repent and be forgiven. You notice that? It's, as we would say, the writing's on the wall. 
he had missed his opportunity. Because from the example of Nebuchadnezzar, he should have known that God is supreme. He should have known that God humbles the mighty. He would have led, read Nebuchadnezzar's letter to the world. Uh, he, sh he should have known of God's grace and mercy, how God had forgiven and restored Nebuchadnezzar. But Belshazzar couldn't care less. He couldn't give a fig about that. Uh, all he's interested in is having a great booze up with his mates and, uh, and toasting his pagan gods with the cups from God's temple. Therefore, the writing was on the wall. In verse 30, that very night he was slain. He was killed. He lost his life. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. Now, Darius was probably a representative of uh, Cyrus, who was the king of Persia. So what do we see about this bloke? Um, first of all, we've got to say that he, just from a purely worldly human perspective, he wasn't a great king, was he? Uh, I mean, you know, while he was throwing a drunken star-studded party for a thousand of his, uh, of his mates... Uh, with the abuse of God's cups as being the high point on the entertainment agenda for the night, uh, while he was you know, indulging with his A-listers, well, guess what was happening outside the gates of Babylon? The, uh, the, the, the enemies of Babylon were massing, they were preparing to attack the city and to take it. And this fellow was oblivious to it. He didn't have a clue that that was about to happen to him and that that was going on right at that very time. You'd have to say he was a pathetic king. He was a dreadful ruler of his country. But what about us? I mean, if this is written down for our benefit, then uh, what is the message to you and me? What, what encouragement and what challenge and warning ought we to be uh, receiving from the example of Belshazzar? Let me just say a couple of points. Uh, there's actually quite a few things we could learn from this fellow's uh, uh, life, but I'll just mention a, t a couple of them. First of all, Belshazzar had no excuse for being so arrogant and not worshipping God because God, through the life of Nebuchadnezzar, had provided what you'd have to say was an extraordinary example of God's power and also of God's mercy. Now, Belshazzar had that example before him and he had no excuse, then you and I have got even less excuse uh, for not bowing the knee to the true God. The reason I say that is because God has actually provided for you and me a much greater uh, example and demonstration of his power and mercy. We see that in the death of and the resurrection of Jesus. In particular, in particular, the resurrection of Jesus is the sure sign to you and me that one day we will be judged. But people ignore Jesus, don't they? Uh, people live their lives as if there is no day of reckoning as if uh, the indulgence of our senses through 
pleasure, through material possessions, through relationships and so on, uh, that that is what life is all about. That's how people live. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, the Apostle Paul says, well, in one sense, that's fair enough. Uh, He says that uh, if Jesus has not been resurrected from the grave, then if his bones are still sitting in a tomb in Palestine, then what that means is that after we die, then we will not be resurrected either. That death is the end of it, that's all that there is. Now, if that is the case, says Paul, then that also means that there's no day of judgment. Therefore, how ought we to live our lives? Well, Paul says it's simple. Eat, drink and be merry. Live it up. Have a party. Because tomorrow you die and that's the end of existence. If there is no resurrection, if there is no day of judgment. But friends... The resurrection of Jesus is the clear evidence that uh, the death is not the end of our existence. But like Belshazzar, in his eating and drinking and being merry, we too can be seduced by the pleasures and by the false securities of this world. Uh, You see, Belshazzar trusted in his gods, didn't he? Now we've seen that the true God had the power to, uh, to cause Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to survive the, 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 the fire. But this bloke, by putting his trust in his false gods, they had no power to stop the Medes and the Persians from coming and overrunning the city. He trusted in his false gods in the same way that we can trust in the false securities that are offered by this world. And like Belshazzar, we can live our lives in oblivious, uh, oblivious to the impending judgment. Jesus himself made this very point. In Luke chapter 12, you might remember the story of the farmer who obviously was not an Australian farmer, uh, who had a bumper crop and uh, was so wealthy that he had to tear down his barns and build bigger barns and he thought, mate, I've got it made. He said, uh, I'm going to live a long life I'm going to put my feet up, I'm going to eat, I'm going to drink, I'm going to be merry, I'm going to have a great time uh, in my retirement. Yet he gave no thanks to God. And like Belshazzar, that very night his life was taken from him. Hebrews chapter 9 says that man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Now, the writing is on the wall. The writing is on the wall. And the key issue here is the resurrection of Jesus. Because if Jesus has been resurrected, then with no doubt, there is a day of judgment. Uh, the Apostle Paul really nails that in, uh, in Acts chapter 17. Uh, in his sermon in Athens. You might want to write this one down because it's not in your outline. It's a passage that I've just thought of. In uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 31, uh, verse 30, it says, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Verse 31, 
for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. You see that? The resurrection of Jesus, that is the writing on the wall. That is the proof that says that there is a day of judgment and we need to be ready for that. How, therefore, can we be prepared for this day of judgment? Well, that's the second point. Daniel chapter 5 shows us this contrast between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar, but in the Gospel, we see a far greater contrast between two other kings, between King Belshazzar and King Jesus. In the Gospel, uh, we see that contrast in a very marked way. Think of some of the contrasts. Think of Jesus. Unlike Belshazzar, he did not live in a palace. Unlike Belshazzar, he didn't command armies. Uh, nor did he have servants. Uh, Jesus, unlike Belshazzar, had none of the glitz and the glamour which this world so craves. He had no possessions. And he certainly didn't throw parties for the rich and the powerful. And also unlike Belshazzar, when Jesus' life was weighed, he was not found to be wanting. In fact, uh, in obedience to his father, he was found to be perfect and complete. It was found that when Jesus' life was weighed, that in fact, that he fully satisfied God's demands for perfection, for holiness. And not just for himself. Because by his death on the cross, our sin has become his sin. So that his perfection now becomes our holiness and our forgiveness. But there's something about Jesus which is very similar to Belshazzar. Tell you what it is. One day, Jesus too will host a great party, a great banquet. But instead of Belshazzar's 1,000 nobles, this banquet is going to be filled with millions and millions and millions and millions of men and women, of boys and girls, uh, people who had occupied high positions, people who occupied low positions, wealthy people, poor people, uh, middle class people, people from all walks of life, from all nations, uh, from all languages. It'll be a banquet that is filled with people who simply trust in King Jesus. At that banquet, there will be no room for pride or for toasting our own achievements. Every person at that banquet will be humbly absorbed in praising and thanking God, the true God. And they'll be doing so forever. Because this is not a kingdom which can be overtaken by the enemies. This is not a kingdom whose king can be deposed overnight like that. This is a kingdom which goes on eternally. In a few moments' time, we're going to be uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper together. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, 
uh, we do so to reflect uh, to, uh, upon the fact that, uh, that Jesus uh, died on the cross for our sins and that uh, he was resurrected so that he is King Jesus, uh, the one who will come again one day to judge the living and the dead. But as we celebrate the supper, we also do so in order to uh, reflect and to look forward to, with craving, the fact that one day we will be at this great banquet, at this great party. Uh, the Lord Jesus in Mark's Gospel said to his disciples uh, at the Last Supper, he said, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I come into my kingdom. As we uh, share in the Lord's Supper, we look forward to that day when we will be gathered together with all of God's people, with all of those who have bowed the knee to Jesus. We will not be suffering from the effects of sin and in that banquet room of God we will be feasting with God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit forever. Are you looking forward to that? Is that what drives you in life? That end point that you have an invitation and you've accepted that invitation to the great banquet of God. What if you haven't accepted that invitation? Friends, we need to learn the lesson from Belshazzar, don't we? Because the writing is on the wall. Jesus has raised from the dead. Judgment will happen. We tend to think that we're bulletproof and we can sometimes live as if our life is going to go on forever. That's what Belshazzar thought. That's what the rich farmer thought. But the reality is that God could demand your life this very day. That could happen. There was a car smash during the service at nine o'clock just out the front there. Could have killed someone. Those people would not have gotten up this morning thinking that that might have been their last day. They're okay, by the way. <laughs> but you don't know, do you? God could demand your life at any point. So the issue then is, at that point, what will your petty achievements of this life do for you? Where will they leave you? So I need to ask you the question, have you humbled yourself before God? Have you come to kneel before his throne? Is Jesus your king? Or is life still revolving around you? Unlike Belshazzar, there is still the time to repent and to turn back to God. So let me encourage you, uh, if that is you, then not to leave this building today without having made that commitment to the true God. And if it's a commitment that you've made already, can I encourage you to look forward to that day, that great banquet, and live your life now uh, in the knowledge that that's the destination. This is not where it's at. That is where it's at. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that uh, you have given us scripture that we might be challenged and encouraged and comforted. Uh, we uh, do pray 
that we would not be like Belshazzar. Uh, help us, Father, to glory not in ourselves, but in you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you so much that uh, he has not only died for us, but has been raised from the dead. We thank you that uh, you have appointed him as the judge and you've proven that by his resurrection. Father, may each one of us here be men and women who humbly bow the knee before Jesus and look forward to that great heavenly banquet. We pray in his name. Amen.